All right. Good afternoon, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Welcome to the very first episode of a little bit about everything. Um, I'm I'm excited for this. I've been thinking. I've been trying to basically do a podcast for a while now, uh, and couldn't come up with a good idea for one really. Um, I mean, every look, it, everybody has a podcast in today's world. So you know what? What will separate mine from everybody else's? And um, you know, I I think I you know I, I've told some of you guys some of some of you about this before, but uh, you know the reason why I call it a little bit about everything is because, um. I I am a jack of all trades. Kind of know a lot about of uh, a little about a lot of things. Um and a lot about a lot about many things. So, um I I thought I could kind of have a, a variety podcast where we talk about all kinds of different things. Um that'll run a pretty big gamut and it's going to go from you know, politics, um, you know, and, and I, I say politics, uh, in a way that won't be overly political, you know, that's, that's not my goal, um, to be political. I've, I'm, you know, as I, some of you may know, I'm a professor and I've always tried to be as apolitical as possible in, in, in my class. And, um, I, you know, I have very strong political opinions, um, but it's not my job to um, impart my political opinions on you. If you have questions about them, I'll be happy to share them with you. But, um, you know, that's that's not my one, number one goal. But there are important things to talk about in the world that revolve around politics. Um, yeah, I know. I just saw that, Riley. Uh, Russell Wilson. Uh, is becoming a Bronco. Um, and so we actually might, might talk about that a little bit today too. Um, but that's, that's being said, you know, politics, uh, law, um, international relations, sports, video games, comedy, all that kind of stuff. I'm going to try and, and throw into this podcast. Uh, and I'm going to try and keep it as close to an hour as I possibly, uh, can. Um, so, um, which can be a little bit difficult for me, especially if you've ever had me for a class, I, I tend to kind of go over time, um, more often than not. Um, but that's okay. You know, um, it's the, the, the beauty of podcasts is if you're listening to this on Spotify or whatever, um, I can edit it down. If you're listening to it live, then I'm sorry, you're probably going to hear a little bit more than everybody else. And, uh, I apologize for that, but, um, but uh, this, I, I'm excited for this. I think it's going to be a good podcast. Um, and I just kind of wanted to, uh, quickly introduce myself for those of you that may not know me or may have never heard of me or picking up this just randomly listening to podcasts, um, which thank you for listening. Uh, my name is Bryce Dickey. I'm, uh, uh, a, a lawyer, um, 
And I, I want to make sure that this is very clear. I'm a lawyer. I'm not an attorney. Uh, I was an attorney. I'm no longer an attorney. I, I decided I didn't like being an attorney. Uh, and so I'm a lawyer now. Uh, and to that effect, I'm a professor. Um, unfortunately for me at this point, not full-time professor. Uh, I have been full-time before, but for the past about five years, I've just been doing adjunct work. Um, and so I teach law. I've taught uh, a number of different classes, um, from ethics to morality, uh, to classes on research and uh, artificial intelligence, cyber law, environmental law, national security law, business law. Um, I've covered a, a large gamut of classes, and that kind of kind of goes into that point of I'm, I'm you know, a master of none. Um, but I, I would say that I, I know a lot about uh, a lot of different things. One of my favorite things to do is um, do research and, um, you know, read about things and try and, and get to the bottom of them. I'm, and, and a couple of my favorite things are, um, uh, you know, artificial intelligence and space. And so those are two things we'll probably talk quite a bit about on this podcast. Um, but outside of that, uh, I'm uh, a family man. I'm a father, a, a, a wife. Um, I have two dogs, two cats. Um, and I am trying to be a full-time streamer. That's kind of my goal right now. I'd, I'd really like to do that. Um, so, um, you know, You'll get to know me pretty well over the course of this podcast. That's my goal. Um, I'm hoping to have some guests here and there. Um, see what I can get some of my my colleagues uh, at some of the places that I've taught, and you know, uh, most of you probably know the places that I've taught before, um, but they don't pay me enough money to put their name out. Uh, on what I'm hoping will become a, a bigger-ish podcast. Um, and so, uh, anyways, um, so that's just a little bit about me. Um, and so today, uh, I want to talk about two different things. Um, in fact, we're going to talk about three things, uh, just because it's a, a new thing that I just saw. Um, I'm going to have to kind of read an article here on it really quick. Um, we're going to talk about uh, Russell Westbrook coming to the Denver Broncos. So if you can't, if you're watching this, uh, you can see that I am a uh, huge Cubs fan. I like pretty much all sports. Uh, I am a Cubs fan above all other teams that I support, um, but I hate baseball more than pretty much every other sport. So, uh, that being said, uh, I'm a huge Denver Broncos fan um, and uh, Phoenix Suns. Um, historically, I've always rooted for the Suns and then the Seattle Supersonics, which I'm excited about them coming back. I'll see if I can uh, maybe wrangle up some someone that may have some knowledge about that, and we'll talk about that uh, at a future date. Um, but it looks like as of uh, about 1245 this afternoon, there's been an agreement 
in principle uh, to send Russell Wilson, the quarterback for the uh, current uh, Seattle Seahawks, to Denver Broncos. Um, I'm looking to see what all they're going to give up. Um, I, I saw Drew Locke. Uh, I'm, and it looks like a, a pretty significant, probably a number of, of um, draft picks and that kind of stuff. Now, the big thing here is is that, one, there has to be a physical, and two, Russell Wilson has to pass a physical. Um, so that being said, I, I have a love-hate relationship with... Um, sorry, Russell Wilson, you're right. I hope... God, I hope I never want to see Russell Westbrook on any of my teams, Russell Wilson. Um, but um, I, I have a love hate relationship with with Russell Wilson, mostly because my favorite player of all time is Peyton Manning, and and Russ Wilson beat Peyton Manning in the one of the Super Bowls, and so that was, and it was not a good Super Bowl for the Broncos or Peyton Manning at all. Um, so that was a. a pretty bitter pill to swallow um i i when when i saw russ wilson and you know anybody can make any kind of claim that they want but when i saw russell wilson at nc state i knew he was going to be a good quarterback and when i saw him at wisconsin that kind of furthered my belief that he was going to be a good quarterback um and so i i kind of saw it and i believed that he would be a good quarterback um and and I think he's got a lot of potential. Um, and personally, he kind of annoys me. He's a little bit too pious for me. And but whatever, you know, each to his own. Uh, when you're on the football field, it doesn't really matter. All that matters is is winning. Um, you know, I, there was a lot saying that the Broncos should have uh, were going to get Aaron Rodgers, and we didn't. Whatever, kind of same thing there. I guess I would rather have Aaron Rodgers than Russell Wilson, but um, at least Russell Wilson is is younger, so that that helps a lot. Um, hopefully, we can get him to sign an extension uh, once we we uh, get him here, as long as he agrees to the the trade in principle. So, anyways, uh, pretty exciting news so far. Uh, we'll keep you updated. If I see any more news on that, I will update you. Uh, but the first thing I wanted to talk about uh, originally was I wanted to talk about um, the situation in Ukraine and um, the the war uh, that has erupted in Ukraine. Um, you know, it's a it's a very depressing situation. I think is kind of the 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 best way I can put the that um and there's a lot of different aspects you can look at it um i think for me you know i'm always looking at you know what what are the legalities of this war um what you know what what are the the actions that the united states can take um and then from kind of a strategic basis i also am looking at you know what you know how is Ukraine doing as well as they are in this fight? This this should have been over in the matter of of three or four days, and it's not. And that really speaks to the willpower 
of the Ukrainian people, and that's that's really amazing. Um, so much so that I've I've been, I don't know, as as about as serious as a person can get. I, I mean, about look at joining the Ukraine Foreign Legion. I I think it'd be fun. I don't I don't think they would actually take me, because um, I'm too old at this point and I've got back problems. But I I would definitely go fight uh for them um just because you know i i want to try and and be you know fight on the side of right and uh i think russia's clearly in the wrong here but um you know that's a, a conversation we can have for for another time but if we look at this first you know how did we get here how did we get to the point where uh, Russia decided that they wanted to invade Ukraine completely. Um, so the big thing is, you know, this, this goes back a long time. This goes back to, um, to 1991, really with the, the ultimate fall of the Soviet union. Um, so, uh, really quick, I, just to answer your question, Preston, the Foreign Legion is when you can sign up to go fight for another country's army. Um, so the most famous is like the French Foreign Legion because they kind of go anywhere. Um, but the um, the the Ukrainian Foreign Legion is is kind of like a you can go sign up to to be conscripted into their military services um, and, and volunteer to fight. So there's, there's actually been a, a bunch of really cool stories about people that have done that. Uh, usually they want you to have some sort of military training or law enforcement training to be part of it. But my guess is they're probably going to take anybody who's willing to fight at this point. So, um, that's what the foreign legion is. Um, so anyways, going back to 91, at the fall of the Soviet union, um, you know, and, and the theoretical end to the Cold War, um, what ended up happening is there was a number of, of different states uh, that were formed um, as, as the Soviet Union fell. Um, so you had like the Czech Republic uh, that, that later became Czechoslovakia. You have Estonia, Latvia, uh, Ukraine, um, parts of Georgia. So there was all of these different countries that were originally part of um, the, the the Soviet Union. And so when it fell, a lot of these countries kind of went out and, and, and were able to become their own sovereign nations like they had wanted for, for quite some time. Well, within Russia, there was a lot of conflicting philosophies on whether or not it was a good thing for these countries to kind of to become free to 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 gain their sovereignty and at the time putin uh vladimir putin was one of those people who has ever since been staunchly against um the the dis dissolution of the soviet union and would like to see a lot of the old soviet territories reunified with russia itself and so this is a bit of that kind of Eastern European empire building that uh, Vladimir Putin has kind of wanted since the fall of the Soviet Union. 
Uh, but there's there's more to it than that. Um, after World War II, um, there was a thing called uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And it's what we now know as NATO. Okay, so, so NATO was formed after World War II. And they became instrumental during the Cold War in keeping the Soviet Union a bit in check on how far their expansion into Europe and their empire building into Europe went. Um, and now that wasn't necessarily the goal of NATO at the time. It was more just like, hey, we don't we're trying to do everything we can to refrain from having a World War III. And so NATO kind of sought to be a means in that end. Um, and so as the, the Cold War went on between the United States and the Soviet Union, um, the NATO became more of an instrumental agency in keeping the Soviets from their from kind of expanding westward. And then after the fall of the Soviet Union in 91, a lot of those former Soviet bloc countries uh, either applied to or did in fact join NATO. So you have Estonia and Latvia that are part of NATO uh, in today's world, and they are countries that are, are protected under this treaty and and. For those of you who don't know, a treaty is an international document signed by two or more countries uh, that can cover a whole gamut of things. And in this particular case, it's kind of a defense treaty. So uh, basically what that means is if anybody attacks one singular country that's part of NATO, they're attacking all countries that are part of NATO. And that was a big threat to Russia having these old Soviet bloc countries be part of NATO because that was kind of the Western world that they were fighting against. Um, and so Ukraine has been a country that has been, frankly, in turmoil for a lot of the past three decades since the fall of the, the Cold War or the fall of the Soviet Union. And they've asked to join NATO uh, a number of different times and they are not currently a member of NATO. And from what I've read, they've never really been close to being a member of NATO because there's just too much politics around it. It's it's too much. The Ukraine is too much part of um, Russia's sphere of influence. And so it, it would be very dangerous for the United States to make uh, Ukraine a NATO country. Um, now, after this, that might change. I don't know. Uh, it could change. We'll see kind of the resolution of what's going to happen. Um, so with that threat of the Ukraine becoming part of NATO, um, you know, Putin felt like he needed to act a little bit quicker. And so you saw in 2014, I believe it was, um, Russia going in and taking over Crimea which is something that was given to Ukraine um, when they become their own sovereign country. But it was highly disputed because it's a very important piece of territory strategically. Um, 
both in terms of military strategics uh, and in terms of logistics and and getting access to Europe in general uh, for trade and that kind of stuff. So, um, the they uh, sorry Russia went in and they took over um, Crimea um, and it has since been. I would argue that it's been a disputed state at this point, um, but Russia has basically claimed, laid claim to it and has claimed it since that uh, that invasion. Um, and it was a relic, relatively quick war. It was kind of they went in, they took it, and you know Ukraine didn't put up much of a fight. Um, and part of the problem is in those provinces with Crimea and two of the provinces around there. Uh, I, I forget what their name is off the top of my head. Um, they are, um, excuse me one second. Um, they are kind of, there is, there is a sentiment of loyalty towards Russia in those areas amongst part of the population. And so you had part of the population, these separatists, that were making agreements with Russia saying, Hey, if you come and liberate us, um, and they, um, if you come and liberate us, we'll, we'll join Russia. Um, and, and we'll help you kind of spread your sp sphere of influence here into, uh, more of, of Eastern Europe. And so that kind of brought the impetus to, Vladimir Putin to invade Ukraine. Um, so I've heard a few other theories. Um, I don't know the validity of these theories, but but they seem to to make at least some sort of sense. As you know, if you followed warfare, um, a lot of warfare is is over land, territory, and resources. Um, the worst wars are typically about ideologies. Um, but this is one of those times where it's really about land. And there is some ideological issues within this, this particular fight, but it really boils down to land and territory. And this other argument of natural resources, excuse me. So there's this, um, apparently in Ukraine in find the exact region. Um, in the one of the gulfs on Ukraine, um, there has been a, a significant amount of oil exploration that has gone on. And because of that, um, in the Black Sea, um, and because of what has gone on with that uh, oil exploration, they have found enough oil to become one of the world's top 20 oil producers. Um, and that would make a big threat to Russia if the Western world went to Ukraine and purchased more oil from Ukraine than they were purchasing from Russia. Now, Russia, I believe, is still the world's number one oil producer. Um, they're at least the top three, but this would really 
actually impact Russia uh, and how much oil they can um, export to the rest of the world. Um, especially with them building, I know of at least three different oil pipelines, uh, one to the south and two to the west, um, that would really increase how much oil that they can distribute to the rest of the world. So there's a belief that it wasn't just about liberating these kind of two provinces of the Ukraine, but it was also about natural resources and going in and effectively taking over almost all of Ukraine um, to get access to these oil fields. Now, again, that's speculation. Is that good reasoning? Is that good, you know, foreign policy analysis? It is. Um, but with all natural resource exploitation and research and exploration, you always have to take it with a grain of salt because who knows, um, how much is one actually there and two, who knows, you know, if, if somebody was just kind of puffing those numbers up to try and get investment to come in and do more, uh, exploration. So you know, it can be problematic when you're uh, assessing things like like natural resources and, and deciding whether or not that was part of the impetus for invasion. Um, now, that, I, anyways, so so now that we've kind of set up the, the background as to why Vladimir Putin has gone into Ukraine, which is, you know, I, the essence of it comes down to the fact that this is something... He's wanted to do since the end of the Cold War, um, and and now he's finally got reason to do it. So, um, so here's another question: Do we see even higher gas prices with Biden set to ban Russian oil imports? Then, uh, do you see this import ban as potentially problem as a potential problem? So I I definitely think in the next three weeks we're going to see gas prices get even higher. Um, a big problem is gasoline was already, the barrels of oil were already increasing. I think, I mean, this is a problem you always have with commodities on the stock market as they get traded, you know, they're, they're commodities tend to be more volatile than any other type of investment and oil is exactly the same and oil has been historically low adjusted for inflation over the past three years. Um, well, when it's been low that long, most investors think, all right, well, it's got to go back up. Um, you know, and there's enough countries that sit around and, and, and kind of reserve oil, especially when, when oil prices are low, so that the, the market price is reflective equally as much um, of the investors as it is, as it is supply and demand. Um, and so what we saw is that the price of oil was going up because demand in the commodity itself was increasing. Well, then you start seeing these supply chain issues that cropped up across the world from COVID, um, which again, this is, I think a lot of the supply chain issues you have to take with a, a gigantic grain of salt. I don't know if 
they're as real as a lot of people pretend or claim they are. <laughs> Let me rephrase, not pretend, but claim that they are. Uh, but nevertheless, I mean, I think supply chain issues were certainly an issue. Now, why were there supply chain issues? Now, that's kind of a different question. Um, but with oil being banned from Russia, will that drive oil prices up more? Yes. Um, but I think the reason that the price of oil is going to be driven up uh, is going to be ancillarily related to that because people are going to be one afraid. And so they're going to invest in oil, uh, which will drive up the cost per barrel of oil. Um, and two, um, our national reserves of oil <clears throat> are low or I wouldn't say that they're super low, but they're definitely lower because Biden had released some, I think six months ago. Um, and so, and and I think it was the highest release of oil from our reserves in at least the past thirty years. Um, so, because there was that release of oil, um, you know, our reserves are getting to be depleted ish. Uh, I mean, they're they're quite a ways from being fully depleted, but you know that plays really into the mentality of the American public and investors. It takes over the mentality of of you know, oil companies and executives and people that are selling oil because there is some point at which they can help set the market price for those commodities too. Um, at least market price for whatever commodities that they own personally uh, and more directly than a lot of other people can. So um, are we going to see a, a rise? Yeah. From what I've seen, it's going to go up to about four and a quarter a gallon, which is the highest we've ever seen it here. Um, but I, I think it will probably be a relatively quick turnaround. Um, and it'll probably fall, I would say, I hope, 50, 50, uh, 50 cents, not 50%, 50 cents uh, in the subsequent six months. Um, that's just kind of what I've seen from, from a lot of the analysis once people kind of calm down. Um, but that brings a really kind of interesting perspective into this of you know what do you do in this situation and why um why why isn't the united states involved in ukraine why haven't we sent our military to the ukraine you know why hasn't nato done more you know why that's a big question that always gets asked why uh, and it's, it's a complex question. Um, and the big reason why at this point is it serves no, and, and this is a, a very depressing way to look at this, but it serves no strategic purpose for the United States to get involved in this skirmish. Um, Ukraine is, is firmly under the Russian sphere of control. Um, and although they've been asking to be part of NATO, you know, there's been a lot of questions of loyalty within NATO itself. So I'm not sure if that's, you know, a good reason to go in there. But there's there's no real good reason for, for the United States to be there. We've got so many other countries around Ukraine that are part of NATO that ceding 
the Ukraine to Russia isn't a huge loss for the United States. And ultimately, in a battle like this, you have to be concerned of the Cold War, right? Mutually assured destruction. Uh, a, a few last week, uh, Vladimir Putin put his uh, strategic uh, nuclear command on high alert uh, by basically saying, look, if any other country gets involved, we're going to nuke someone, uh, especially a superpower. And that's, you know, a, a big concern. Um, and is that a bluff? I would certainly hope it's a buff, bluff. I think it's a bluff. I think that's an incredibly stupid thing to do. But over the past 12 years, Vladimir Putin has become so wildly unpredictable that you can't really truly say whether or not... Um, He's completely bullshitting everybody or not on that. And so it's the, the juice isn't worth the squeeze in this particular case going in and, and using us forces to help protect the Ukrainian people is not worth it. Right. Because there's no strategic reason to be there. Now you could argue maybe the oil reserves, but I think we've, We've went down that road before over the past 20 years and it didn't work so well. Uh, so the good thing is, is it seems like the United States seems to be learning from history, uh, which I think in the past, you know, 50 years is something we've maybe had a little bit of a problem with. Um, and so there just doesn't seem a good, like a good reason to get involved. And if you go look and, you know, this is kind of one of those times where politics comes into play and you can kind of look down the center of the aisle and parties on both sides by and large agree that we have no business being involved militarily in the Ukraine. You know, I think or for who he is, president Biden was a relatively hawkish Democrat uh, coming into this election. Um, and I think he has realized that he kind of got burned by being as hawkish, hawkish as he was over the past 50 years of his political career and has kind of reduced how much of a hawk that he really is. And, you know, even if you go on to the Republican side and look at Tom Cruise and Mark, or Tom, not Tom Cruise, Ted Cruz, <laughs> Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, and, and they're even saying, yeah, it's not a good idea for us to be involved in this. Um, and they, they're two incredibly hawkish senators. So um, there's just not a lot of good reason for the United States to be in there. And so whenever you're looking at warfare, you're always trying to figure out, well, what is, what are the, the options that we have? What are the options that we can take? Um, and Ultimately, the, 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 the last option you always have is go to war, right? That's always the last option you have. Well, <laughs> what are the options leading up to that? And what you see is you see a bunch of, of economic um, and strategic sanctions um, that can be placed on a country. And I would say that some of these have almost gone as far as an embargo. Now, I don't think we will ever push it that far against Russia 
to make uh, an embargo because I believe that would uh, invoke a, a military action. But you're seeing all of these economic sanctions being placed on the Soviet Union, um, both in you know from the political perspective, um, and also from the private sector. I just saw on my phone that McDonald's is temporarily closing all of its stores in Russia. Um, you know, Apple has shut down the Apple Store, and they've stopped selling their products in Russia. I think Nike has as well. The funniest one I saw, and I think this is actually true, Adidas has uh, banned the sale of tracksuits in Russia. Um, I don't know. That that could have been a joke, but I think it was actually a real thing. Um, and and if it was a joke, it's a, it's a damn good joke. Um, but nevertheless, you see all these, these sanctions. Um, and they've been... Ultimately, they've not been that effective. And when you look at sanctions, um, this is the big problem you run into because sanctions ultimately hurt the people more than they hurt the leaders. Um, so what do I mean by that? Okay. So when Russia went into Crimea in 2014, um, one of the things the United States did is they said, all right, we're going to put a sanction on Russia and we sell 60% or at the time we had sold 60% of, uh, Russia's chicken to them. Okay. So, you know, we're, we're a big agricultural, um, exporter. And so we, uh, exported a, a bunch of chicken to Russia. And so, um, we said, all right. We're restricting how much chicken we're going to sell to, to Russia and how much we're allowing people to sell to Russia. Well, ultimately, who does that hurt? Well, it hurts all the domestic U.S. chicken farmers like Tyson and Purdue and all the, the smaller chicken farmers because if they're selling 60% of their chicken to Russia, 60% of their business has just gone away. Uh, so that harms them. And then it hurts the people of of Russia because now chicken costs infinitely more money because they can't get it from anywhere and it becomes more difficult to get. And as it becomes more difficult to get, um, you know, it, it increases the prices. And so part of what you're hoping with economic sanctions is kind of this this idea of the trickle up effect that it'll piss the people off so bad that they'll say, hey, we should stop doing what we're doing. So they relieve these sanctions. That just doesn't really work in cases where you're dealing with despots because they don't really care about what their people have to say. If you've been watching the news, there's been all kinds of fights uh, on, or not fights, but protests on the street of Russia that have evolved into fights between the government and the people. And, you know, the Russian first, quote unquote, the Russian first amendment doesn't really exist, at least not at the same level as it does here in the United States. But people are still out there protesting in mass about the invasion of, of the Ukraine. Um, but, you know, the people now in Russia are saying, hey, we have to stop this because the amount of international sanctions that we're receiving 
is almost impossible for us to deal with. Um, and it's, it's making the cost of living just increasingly, you know, expensive. And you have to think, and this is one of the things a lot of people don't really think about what you have to do is you have to think about, okay, what happens in the next generation that looks at this and says, all right, why, why did my parents lose their jobs and why could we not afford food? And, you know, the real answer is, well, you had a despotic leader that made a bad decision, got involved in a war, and the world had to punish him. Uh, but the other part of that is, well, these countries all took out the punishments on the people. And so what kind of a future does that create? And does that create more of a, a potential for an enemy in the future? And, and you don't see that examined a whole lot uh, in uh, the discussion of sanctions. So um, it's, it's, it's problematic. You know, sanctions are problematic. It's something that, that is necessary because, you know, you can't fight everything with bullets and bombs. Um, but I, you know, and, and I don't know what the best line of, of, of protection is, um, you know, for, for the people of Ukraine from the outside, absent military presence. Um, but I, I think that these sanctions have been for the most part, pretty well thought out, um, pretty well considered, pretty, pretty decently implemented. Um, and, and, I'm hoping it will be at, at the end of the day more effective. Will it be? I'm not sure. You know, well, time will tell. You know, at this point, Russia is still involved in, in military actions in the Ukraine. So obviously they haven't worked perfectly. Um, but, you know, it, it's something that, that that's still hopefully will resolve itself and, and ultimately be the cause for why. Uh, hopefully Russia stops its its fighting. So if we were to look really quick, you know, we looked at the punishment. I was planning on kind of talking about what was going on first before getting into the punishment. But, um, you know, now that we've kind of talked about the potential punishments that are available for this, you know, if you look at what's going on, one of the things that I've been looking for as I've been examining uh, the, the, the news articles that I've read, the, the satellite imagery that I've looked at is, you know, what is or what what are the potential war crimes? Um, and to me, there are a lot of war crimes being committed uh, in the Ukraine. One of the biggest rules of warfare is that you don't target civilians. You're not supposed to target civilians, right? A war is supposed to be between the two militaries. And this is always a difficult discussion to have. You know, how do you know what, uh, well, I mean, how do you keep a war simply between the two militaries? And this is something the United States had a huge problem uh, confronting uh, in the past 20 years in the, the, the quote-unquote war on terrorism is because we couldn't always identify who was the enemy. And so it led to a lot of, you know, to be 100% honest, ultimately, war violations, laws of war violations. Um, 
but that that's a hard thing to do because they you know a lot of our enemies at that time were not typically dressed military which is in of itself actually a violation of the laws of war but when you have two clearly identified militaries um you really have no excuse for targeting civilians and it appears that they, that that Russia is directly targeting civilians it's pretty much indisputable at this time at this point um the, the the laws of war the geneva conventions always also talk about the restrictions on attacking supply chains and and logistics and it doesn't say that you're not allowed to do it um but you have to be very careful on how you're attacking the supply chain by you know attacking the supply chain itself not attacking civilians that are there and you're supposed to basically give civilians warning by saying hey this is an important industry. Um, we're going to bomb the shit out of you in 24 hours, so you better leave. And from what I've read, there has been some of that. There has been, uh, particularly what what I read with the um, uh, the defense industry in Ukraine, Russia did in fact say we're going after the defense industry. We know where you're at. We know the targets. And we're going to attack you in the next 24 hours. So you better leave. Um, so those themselves are not directly violations of the laws of war, I would say. Um, but some of them have been questionable. There's been a lot of attacks on, you know, city centers, uh, on what seem to be apartment buildings, uh, hospitals, that kind of stuff. And that kind of stuff is a real, real violation of the laws of war. Um, so, and not all of them have been, um, have received warning before they, they were struck with bombs basically. So that has been highly problematic in terms of defining what exactly are, those laws of wars laws of war that russia is in fact breaking um and you know it, attacking civilians is always a, a hard discussion to have because when you're attacking civilians um you know collateral damage is part of warfare Right, collateral damage is always part of warfare, and for the most part, international courts have said they've protected the idea of collateral warfare. It said, "Look, if you're involved in collateral warfare, you know if it happens, it happens. It's just part of warfare. As long as you put in some effort to make sure that that's not what happened, you know, targeting system went awry." And it hit a school or something to that effect. But once you are willfully targeting these civilian areas, that's when it, it becomes a true violation of the laws of war. But what, what can be done about that? Let's say it's indisputable that what Putin is doing is a violation of the laws of war. What, what can happen? Well, not a whole lot. 
again, when it comes to the international community, you only have so many options and sanctions are a big one. If you wanted to bring him to some sort of justice, you really have three options. Okay. Your first option is United States captures Vladimir Putin, arrests him and tries him in the United States. Well, Vladimir Putin has a bunch of very high priced attorneys and it's going to cost a lot of money for the U.S. taxpayers to put him on trial. Option number two, take him back to Russia and have the people of Russia try him for war crimes. Okay. Well, again, kind of same problem that you have with the United States. What is the guarantee that the people of Russia are actually going to try him for his war crimes? There's enough high level support for him that there's no way it's going to be a fair and reasonable trial. So your last option is to take him to the International Criminal Courts in The Hague. Are you going to be able to do that? Probably not. Why? You have to apprehend him and you have to figure out whether or not the Soviet, or sorry, not the Soviets, going back to the Cold War, the Russians have viable jurisdiction within the International Criminal Courts. So when a country um, when somebody comes to the international criminal courts, basically they have to give the courts jurisdiction in order to try them for a crime. And that is really tricky depending on what they have signed on to. So I, I should have looked this up before, but I don't know if, uh, Russia has signed on to any of the treaties that give the international criminal courts the jurisdiction that they have. My assumption is they haven't, um, but I'm not 100% sure. I'd, I'd need to look that up and double check that. But those trials take a very, very long time, and typically they're reserved for things like genocide. I wouldn't make the argument that this is genocide. Um, I've heard some people attempt to make that argument. I don't really agree with those arguments. I don't think this is particularly genocide that doesn't mean that it's not other kinds of war crimes okay so um at the end of the day not a whole lot of choices right so um what we're relying on here and this is something that's kind of cool to talk about is what you're relying on is the ukrainians to fight their fight and they've done an incredible job at that. Like I said at the beginning, this should have been over in three days. This should have been, there's no reason that this should not have been over in three days, but the willpower of the Ukrainian people has been so incredibly impressive that they've managed to keep this, um, this war going to protect their country. And that's awesome. That's, that's an incredible thing to do. Um, and the, the tactics that they've been using have been really impressive. Um, you know, I, I'm kind of surprised that, that Russia attacked when they did one, because it's been a pretty mild winter everywhere. And, and Russia really likes to attack in the winter <coughs> because they have a, a, a noted advantage at attacking in that time. And so I was thinking that they were going to wait for it to be a little bit colder to attack. Um, so it would have been earlier in the season, but I, I think part of the problem was because it was so mild that they never really got the 
opportunity to attack when they wanted to. And so kind of came time to shit or get off the pot and, and they did what they had to do. So, um, you know, the Ukrainian people have done the, an incredible job and, and their leader, president Zelensky has done an incredible job of inspiring their people and, and having them continue to, to fight, um, this, this invasion, this incredibly illegal invasion. Um, and, and I say that because the United Nations officially, excuse me, officially condemned, uh, this invasion. Um, so, um, so anyways, um, they, they are, are putting up a hell of a fight and I, I hope they continue to, and I'm hoping that, you know, I saw an article and I really, I just saw the title. I didn't read the entire article. Um, but there was this title, uh, of, of some news article and it was hilarious. It said European countries are no longer afraid of Russia's military. And so I think what we're going to see when we talk about this 10, 20, 30 years from now is that this was a major military blunder on behalf of Russia and Vladimir Putin. Um, because they, they severely underestimated um, the, the willpower of the Ukrainian people uh, and, and Ukrainian leadership as well. Um, and even, I think even if, you know, Russia comes out the victor in this, um, which I, I don't think they will. I don't think there's any way that they can view this as a victory in any way. But I, I think even if they came out of victor, the, the loss to morale of their own people, um, the loss in belief that they have as strong of military as they have, I think is all so harmful to them that there's no palatable way that they can claim an absolute victory here. Um, and so that, that ultimately is going to play a big piece in the world stage once this conflict is is finally over um and i'm i'm very much intrigued to see you know what happens at that that time and place um and i'm i'm hoping that the ukraine can truly fight their way out of this um and and keep them from from advancing it any much further than they are but um you know, I, t to me, that's a lesson that that I hope a lot of you can can take away that that willpower is a powerful thing, and and you know, just because you're down doesn't mean you're out. And you know, we saw this in you know the American Revolutionary War, where you know British troops severely outnumbered American troops, and even you know loyalists were there were a lot of loyalists here loyalists, excuse me, loyalists here. Um, and we managed to win. Now, that being said, we won by violating the current, the, the laws of war at the time. Um, but you know, we still won 
and and that was a huge victory so um you know that's that's the 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 impressive part of this is to see uh the fight that the ukrainian people um really have um and and what they've shown has been truly impressive and um what i'm i'm really excited to do is is hopefully this ends quickly and russia will just leave and realize that um you know they're if you, if you play poker you know you get to a point where you're pot committed so even though you know you're about to lose you're hoping you can still bluff your way out of it well i'm hoping that the russia knows that they still have enough chips left that they can walk away they can still fold their hand and, and walk away um i don't know if vladimir putin's hubris will let him do that um but i i hope that happens and and what i really can't wait to look at is some of the strategy strategy that the the ukrainian military used um to uh to to fight the the soviets um because it's it's really impressive the things that they've been able to do um so I'm, I'm excited to look at that from, from a strategic perspective. So, um, okay. I, I'm going to move on, uh, from Ukraine real quick. And I, I do want to just briefly, um, cause I know I'm running up on an hour. I do want to talk quickly about, um, uh, artificial intelligence. Um, and you know, I have no real way to tie this into Ukraine at all. Um, I just wanted to talk about Ukraine because it's a it's a current topic and it's a big deal. But you know, that's not always what what this podcast is going to be about. It's more about things that that really interest me. And and while that is something that does certainly interest me, you know, I want to talk about things like artificial intelligence um, because it's it's so fascinating to me um, and and where it goes. And and I just I wish I was better at math than I am so that I could get involved in, you know, the more practical side of, of artificial intelligence, um, than I am now, um, which is kind of more on the philosophical side of it. Um, but I, I, I'm sad because I, I used to teach a class every semester almost on artificial intelligence and I'm not probably going to be able to do that again, at least for a while. Um, so, um, I, I look, I know it is linear algebra and it's all, it is until it isn't. And that's, that's the big problem is not only am I bad at math, I'm bad at programming. I can't stand programming. It drives me insane. Um, to write like 300 lines of code. And I know that's not even a lot of lines of code but to write 300 lines of code and run your program and it'd be like nope your syntax is incorrect and then you have to go through all 300 lines to figure out okay where did i miss the freaking semicolon i just i don't have the patience for that um but uh you know we're, we're at at the precipice of the next generation of artificial intelligence and that that's fascinating to me um because of all of the different things that it it, it can lead to 
Um, be that, you know, space travel, uh, life extension, um, you know, in increased capacity for computers, understanding things like consciousness, all of that is, is so fascinating to see where we're going with artificial intelligence. And this is one of those things that, that people are always so, you know, people are one of two ways. There's, there's no third option when you talk about artificial intelligence. People are one, either afraid of it, you know, we don't want to create artificial general intelligence and artif artificial general intelligence would be a artificial system that is uh, indifferent from a human. So you could not tell the difference between that and a human. Um, or artificial super intelligence, which is a, an artificial intelligence that is not just indifferent from a human, but it's so superior to a human, um, that you couldn't, um, couldn't, uh, necessarily contain it. Um, I'm looking that up. I, I, I know the term, but I, I totally forget. Um, uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I know what that is. So, um, so anyways, you know, people are either afraid of it because it's going to enslave all of humanity or people are not afraid of it. And they say, all right, it's the next step of, of whether you think of it as human evolution or, or, you know, societal evolution, whatever you want to look at it, computer evolution. And so, you know, very rarely are people kind of not in one of those two camps. And I, I tend to be in the latter more than the former. I think there's certainly the potential for things like artificial super intelligence and artificial general intelligence to come back and hurt us. Um, and you know, one of my big reasons for talking about things like this is so that we can help, uh, encourage the, uh, ethical and moral use of, of, artificial intelligence, true artificial intelligence, not machine learning, but true artificial intelligence, uh, and, and to use it responsibly and to set up rules and regulations for how it can be utilized, which is something that's really, really hard to do. But I hope that if we, we can start that now, um, that we don't have to worry about it falling into the wrong hands. Um, at the end of the day, what it comes down to is ultimately I'm an existentialist and I think the humans are, are inherently good. Um, you know, that, that is something that every single day, I swear to God, I'm challenged on that idea. Um, but I, I still essentially believe that. And I, I still consider myself an existentialist in that, that vein. Uh, but when it comes to artificial intelligence, uh, particularly artificial general intelligence and artificial super intelligence, uh, you know, I don't think we have to worry about the whole issue of it running rampant and taking over the world. And so you have what, what uh, one of my listeners has, has brought up, something called Rocco's Basilisk. Uh, it's been a while since I've, I've gone over this, so I'm a little rusty on it, but Rocco's Basilisk basically says that if you create an artificial super intelligence, um, that it will go back and capture and torture and kill anybody that didn't help either one create it 
or to help it in its current endeavors um in in today's world and i i believe uh that is predicated on the um the paperclip problem and the paperclip problem is an issue where if you design an artificial super intelligence and you say all right you have one job and you can only only do this one job um and that job is to make paper clips so you've created an artificial super intelligence and you've created limits around it so that hopefully it won't take over the world well ultimately what happens under the the paper clip problem is that the uh the paper clip will uh or the the computer program will just keep making paper clips until it's utilized every single resource in the known universe so it will never stop and ultimately it will do everything in its power to make sure that its goal and its job is completed and finished and so even something so minute as creating a paper clip can become humanly catastrophic when you deal with something like artificial super intelligence and i kind of here's my my big problem with a lot of these artificial intelligence conundrums, theories, um, whatever you want to call them, um, conjectures, uh, is they're so predicated on such a what if scenario that all of the variables have to match up perfectly for most of them to be truthful. Now, do I say that people shouldn't go through and 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 make these conjectures? No, I I don't. I I think it's it's a, a an important thing to do uh, is to continue to to have these kind of thought experiments, um, you know, like the paperclip problem, like the um, I think it's the the Chinese room experiment, um, and um, I need to. Forget, I forget the name of that one. I'll, I'll have to come back and look it up. Um, and basically, that one is is basically you have you're in a room and you have to feed documents to uh, somebody, what you think is somebody, and it's ultimately a computer, and it is learning Chinese based off of the documents that it gives you, and eventually, you know, it, it's going to take over the world somehow. But nevertheless. Um, you know, all of these, these thought experiments are very, very important. Um, but so many of them are, are reliant on, on 50,000 different what if scenarios that are so minute that they kind of disregard the overall basis of humanity, if you will. Um, and, and so that's kind of where I, I get to the point where, yeah, I'm an existentialist and I think because of that, we don't have the, the the fears that are presented in a lot of these conjectures dealing with artificial intelligence and how they're going to take over the world. And the other big problem you have with why these conjectures exist is because of popular culture. And it starts with with Isaac Asimov, who was you know a brilliant scientist and and uh, a a also a brilliant um, you know science fiction writer and you know one of the things he came up with was the the idea of of 
iRobot and, uh, you know, the laws of robotics. And the laws of robotics are something that, that are actually used in, in modern robotics. Um, and I, I, it's really the four laws of robotics now, but, you know, the three laws of robotics are, are still are widely used in, in robotics and, and, and understanding machine learning and artificial intelligence. Um, but it's, it's uh, the reason why, if you read all of the iRobot short stories, the reason why it ends up the way it does is because we wanted to sell books, right? So if you look at pop culture and you look at all of the potential artificial intelligence systems within pop culture, whether it be Cortana, whether it be, um, you know, iRobot, HAL 9000, you know, there's, there's so many different variables of, of different types of systems that the pop culture have shown. Well, yeah, th that creates a good story, but that doesn't mean that's how it's going to be. You know, that doesn't mean that's where artificial intelligence is going to go. And humanity has to consciously make the decision of saying, yeah, we're not going to have artificial intelligence go down that pathway. And that's something that's hard to do because a lot of people don't necessarily want artificial general intelligence and artificial super intelligence to become a thing in the first place. Um, but whether or not you want it to become a thing or not, is irrelevant. It's going to be there. It's going to create a thing. And this goes back to one of my favorite lines of, of movies and, and books ever of uh, from, from Jurassic Park. You were so obsessed with whether or not you could, you forgot to stop and ask whether or not you should. Right. And so there are going to be people out there that are going to try and create these systems, whether or not they should or should not. So that's why we need to, to be proactive in, in creating measures to help ensure that the right systems are created, you know, but why, why I love artificial intelligence so much, um, again, as someone who, who's very bad at math and very, very bad at programming is the reason I, I, I love artificial intelligence uh, is because ultimately it, it brings in so many different topics. Um, you know, you, 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 and it applies to everything, right? And, and the reason why I, I taught classes on it uh, was be, not because it was an actual class on artificial intelligence. It was actually a class on research, um, but because it was narrow enough to say, all right, you have to talk about artificial intelligence, but it was also broad enough to say, you can talk about it in whatever aspect you want. Choose your career path. And in your career path, you're going to be confronted with artificial intelligence in some way, right? Whether you're in the defense industry and you're, you're designing, uh, you know, weapons or, or anti-weapons or whatever it is that you're making. Eventually we're going to get to a point where AI is at least helping you create it. And at potentially at a point where it's going to create it all on its own. And you're there to make sure that it's doing a good job. Uh, to, if you're working at McDonald's, you know, you go into a McDonald's in today's world and you can go up to the screen in the front and order all of your food there. And you, there's actually, I think one, test kitchen where it's almost all uh, automated. And so every part of the world that we're, we're going in today is dealing with artificial intelligence in some scale. And again, 
that's more machine learning than it is artificial intelligence, at least true artificial intelligence. Um, but it, nevertheless, it's, it is something that we all have to confront. Um, and so, you know, it, it's so multifaceted and, and, you know, it brings in a lot of, of philosophical problems that, that we've been asking for thousands of years, you know, um, you know, my, my favorite is, is, well, it's my least favorite actually, uh, the trolley problem, right? And we're seeing a time in real life where we're having to try and program the trolley problem into a computer. And that's with Tesla, right? Because when you deal with things like auto driving systems, the, the trolley problem comes into play. You know, if your car uh, is driving down the road and, you know, it gets cut off and it has two choices, you know, it can swerve to the right and kill a group of pedestrians um, or it can steer into the car and kill the passengers that are in the car, you know, and I love talking about this problem in class because, you know, students always want to create option C. Well, what really happens is it sprouts wings and a parachute and just rockets over the car and everybody's safe. Well, guess what? Life really provides us with an option C. So, uh, you know, in this particular instance, you know, with the trolley program, program, you know, what do you program the car to do? You know, do you, do you program the car to like analyze? All right. Well, how young are the people that it's going to hit? Uh, or do you program the car to say, Hey, this person paid for you, so you better do everything you can to protect the person that's inside the car. You know, how do you confront those problems in modern day artificial intelligence? So, you know, that to me, that's the, the most fascinating thing about artificial intelligence is the different pathways it can go down um, in, in a lot of those kind of philosophical discussions. Uh, you know, what I have studied for artificial intelligence and and you know, I'm going to pick this up in a different uh, podcast, but what I talk, what I've done my research on is, can we create an artificial intelligence system that looks at the human brain in such a way that it's viewing the human brain in a non-human perspective? So why is that important? It's important because uh, when, when a human looks at the human brain and tries to figure out what the human brain does, it creates uh, a logical error of sorts. And it's so conflicted by confirmation bias that it's hard to really understand the human brain. And so what we need to do is we need to have somebody that's not a human examine the human brain well until we get some alien life form to come to earth and say hey will you please dissect this one person and understand how their brain works uh which brings its own ethical problems into it um what we're gonna have to do is is try and create a a system that views things in a non-human perspective and so once we've created that um then we can hopefully get a better understanding of how the human brain works 
and then we can understand things better like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and, and, and all of those diseases. And, and, you know, those things kind of have a special place in my heart. My, my grandpa suffered from Parkinson's for 40 years um, before it took his life. Uh, my, my wife's grandfather was hit with Alzheimer's um, and basically it was really quick. It hit him and then it basically took his life within three years. And so, you know, I'd love to understand those things a little bit better. And, and they're such debilitating diseases and they're, they're hard to deal with, uh, particularly for the people that are around them. So, so being able to create a, a system that can interact with the brain in a different way, um, and help understand those things and understand the brain, um, I think would be really incredible. So, you know, like I said, in another one of these podcasts, I'll, I'll try and go a little bit more in depth into my, my research and what I've, I've hypothesized and kind of what I found. And ultimately I want to, I want to try and uncover what consciousness is. Um, and, and, and that's a, a really hard thing to do. And it's, you know, that's one of those things that, that becomes highly contentious once you start bringing things like religion into it. But, uh, you know, nevertheless, that's, that's kind of one of the things that I, I, working on in one of my my areas of research but um now granted i haven't done a whole lot of research in the past kind of two years on it um so i need to kind of go back and read my own notes which is why i don't want to get into it much here but um uh, you know i what's cool is is seeing things like the neural lace um and and the things that, that elon musk is doing with that and and the potential that that has um to be just just groundbreaking for for research into the human brain um is something that i'm i'm very excited about so we'll probably send spend a whole podcast on that eventually so anyways uh well i i went over an hour like i predicted i would uh we're at about an hour and 20 minutes um but thank you for for showing up to my my first podcast thank you for you know all you live viewers thank you to all of the um uh, people that are, are downloading this and, and listening to it on on Spotify and, and whatnot. Um, um, if if you have suggestions uh, for for things you want to want me to talk about on um, um, on this podcast, uh, and it can be anything you want it to be. Um, I'm trying. I've been trying to create this. Um, there we go. Okay. I've created on my discord, um, uh, something called podcast discussion. And so you can go in there if there's something that you want to, you know, talk about and, and go over a little bit more in depth. Um, even if it's something that I don't know about, if I had the money, I would do nothing but go to school the rest of my life. That's why I, I teach because I like school. But I would go back to college the rest of my life if I could and just learn everything. Um, but unfortunately, that costs a lot of money. So if it, even if it's something that I, I, I don't know, as long as it's not something that's like hyper political, you know, put it in there and I'll, I'll be happy to research it and talk about it and have the discussion. Um, and even if you want to maybe come on and, and talk and ask a few questions, um, I'll, I'll be happy to, uh, you know, answer questions. Um, if you have ideas of people that you want to hear on the podcast, uh, 
put that in in the podcast discussion and um you know i'll reach out to people and see who i can bring on my super tiny podcast at this point but um anyways thank you all again for 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 listening and and i appreciate it uh and, and supporting me um typically i'm gonna do this on wednesdays um at least for the near future i just did it on tuesday because it's my spring break and i had time today uh, but i'll typically be doing this on live on wednesdays um uh at around one o'clock in the afternoon so central time but anyways uh thank you for listening to a little bit about everything podcast and we will talk to you next week <laughs>